Welcome to the Social Work Stories podcast. I'm Liz Murphy. And I'm Mim Fox. Hello Mim, how are you? I'm doing really well, Liz. How are you today? I'm very excited about sidling up to you beside the fireside. I love it. Listen to and discuss another wonderful episode. Absolutely. It's about time. It is. It is about time. And this is a great story that we have tonight. It is another health-related one. And I'll just before I give it a bit, bit of a description, I just want to say to people, we know we've been very health-focused. But we do plan on having other social work stories in different contexts coming to you very, very soon promise absolutely so but this story is a wonderful complex end of life tale that the social worker weaves for us about a man who is a oh god I mean I don't even understand some of the ostomies that are discussed in this story <laughs> you might I'm, I'm glad this social worker is going to explain it but I, I must admit I had no idea you could have so many various ostomies but that amongst a, a cancer diagnosis and extreme treatment this man is dealing with. Yeah, warning for our listeners that there is some medical jargon happening in this story, uh, but it is explained by the social worker. She does that well. But despite all that, this man chooses life and it poses a really, really tricky ethical dilemma for this social worker where she finds herself having to be the voice of the patient going toe-to-toe, it's another toe-to-toe with the doctors again, who actually want him to end treatment. And so we're going to look at a few angles with this this story, aren't we? We're going to look at spirituality and religion. We're going to look at quality of life. But the other one we're going to look at, you particularly wanted to kick us off with, Mim, and that's discharge planning. Yeah, I did, Liz. Um, I think And I should say, for all those listeners who are going, oh, they're going to talk about discharge planning, (laughs) I think that's the automatic response because actually there are a lot of uh, social work students and new grads who come into hospital social work saying they don't want to do discharge planning and don't understand why social workers are doing that sort of work. And I think there are a lot of other professionals in the hospital setting who will say, well, why does it have to be social workers doing that? Why can't we have a nurse as a discharge planner for all the patients. So I guess I just wanted to raise the the idea of where social work sits in discharge planning. This social worker with their story actually really shows the complexity that can actually be involved in social work discharge planning. Absolutely. Can I just mention, I've heard of a hospital who a few years ago, for an industrial issue reason, The social workers actually went on strike and they only responded to what was emergency-related referrals. So, like, you know, emergency ones, end-of-life ones. Everything else they refused to do. That hospital, a busy Sydney-based hospital, ground to a halt within two, maybe three days. And it was because social workers were not facilitating discharge planning so I guess it was one of those situations where people thought oh god it's not as 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 it's not as easy as just ringing up the daughter to come and pick up dad there's so much more that goes into a discharge plan that you don't know until you're actually doing it and social workers do it so well because they do such great assessments 
they find out about this particular person and we'll hear that in this story, right? Yeah, I think it's the individual tailoring that it, social workers do it so is. well. And if you can't do that, then the discharge can go wrong. Oh, absolutely. Or the discharge just simply won't happen. Yeah. yeah. So I hope new social workers and old social workers <laughs> and social work students can listen to this story, listen to the lengths that this social worker is trying to go to organise a discharge that honours this person's decision but also supports him in his end-of-life decision. Absolutely. Yeah, let's have a listen, Liz. Let's have a listen. I had a pretty unforgettable case um, last year. Very briefly, I'll just summarise it. I had a patient, I'll just call him T for privacy's sake. So T was admitted um, in September of 2016 um, for complications relating to bowel cancer. Um, He subsequently had multiple surgeries um, because his cancer had spread to multiple different organs. Um, He'd had a lot of um, resections. So part of lots of different parts of his bowel were taken out stitched back together he had a few stomas he had fistulas lots of different medical issues going on with him Um, he sort of had lots of ongoing complications um, was not looking at a discharge anytime soon and it sort of got to the point where he'd been in hospital for six months and the doctors realized that there wasn't really anything more that they could do for him his cancer had reoccurred um, he really could not handle any more surgery because he was so deconditioned. His bowel would have probably just disintegrated if they tried to cut any more of it. And he was in absolutely no state for radiotherapy or chemotherapy. And I, I guess it sort of, I'd been following his case since he'd been admitted, but it came to the point where the doctor said, okay, well, it's now time for discharge planning. What are we gonna do? Now, the, the complicating factor with this man is that he was, I guess, he had a lot of fluid coming out of him through his colostomy bag. Um, he had um, what's called bilateral nephrostomies, so his urine was being drained straight from his kidneys as opposed to his bladder. Um, and he had a fistula, which was an opening in the middle of his abdomen that was leaking a lot of content as well. So he was actually reliant on four litres of fluid intravenously every day um, because four litres of fluid was going out of him every day. Um, And to summarise it, that fluid was basically the only thing keeping him alive. And the difficulty is that someone with complex care needs like his, he was 63, I think, um, you can't go home on on fluids like that so if very rarely do people go home when they're on intravenous fluids and if they do they have to be able to manage it themselves and they go through a really rigorous process of learning how to do line changes and all of that because you can be so easily you can fall septic if if you don't wash your hands the correct amount of time so home wasn't an option for this man and we considered nursing homes Um, now nursing homes generally also don't take people who are on fluids. Um, 
I facilitated for quite a few nursing homes to actually come into hospital. So workers from nursing homes to come into hospital and see this man and meet him to see what his care needs were like. Um, so as well as the fluids, it was daily changing of his multiple ostomy bags and his, um, you know, nephrostomy bags and attending to his big fistula in the middle of his abdomen. It ended up taking three hours every day for multiple nurses at a time to do that. Um, and I think we had about five or six different visits from people from nursing homes who all just said, look, we don't have the staff that are available to do this. So I think it was the first time I'd ever had someone that was too high care needs for a nursing home, which I'd never experienced before. Um, so by this stage, it was probably about maybe, uh, June so he'd been in hospital what nine months or so um, and we were just sort of racking our brains about what to do um, this man was a very very religious man he was the pastor of his um, local church um, he sought comfort in his faith um, I still remember going into his room every day and he would have um, you know, his, uh, music playing on his phone. It was such a, it, it became so normal to me to walk past his room and hear his sort of praise music that I would hear all of the time. It was actually really nice to listen to. Um, his faith never faltered throughout all of this. Um, despite multiple meetings that we'd had with him and his family, um, he consistently said to us, um, I still think God will heal me. Um, he's just taking his time. His wife was, as she presented to me, was in the same boat. God will heal me. God will heal him. Um, you know, so I, that was sort of something that I was having difficulty juggling as well was the, the religious aspect and respecting that religion versus really needing to be honest, open and honest with this man from a medical perspective. Um, we then got to the point where um, many people in the team, so remembering that he's on fluids, the fluids are keeping him alive, four litres in, four litres out, he needs to be on these fluids. Um, the doctors sort of started discussing what if we took him off the fluids. Um, and it sort of became a bit of an ethical dilemma because this man was compass mentis. He had no, no cognition issues that we were aware of. Um, he was able to hold a conversation and make his own decisions about um, you know finances medication all of that sort of stuff and he said no I want to stay on fluids um, so it basically just became a bit of a back and forth between the medical team the patient I felt I guess as the social worker I was stuck in the middle the medical team were relying on me to try and convince this man to either stop his fluids and choose to die or find an appropriate nursing home, which we realized just wouldn't happen. And the patient was relying on me to be his voice to the medical team for him to, you know, express that he wanted to stay on fluids and, and he was making that decision. So look, in the end, he ended up being in hospital for 372 days. So um, we celebrated his birthday in hospital we got him two cakes it was really fun we sang him happy birthday 
Um, we didn't celebrate too much when he hit 365 days because it's not really, a, I guess, a good thing to celebrate when someone's been in hospital for a year. But he ended up, uh, I mean, gradually because he didn't have any more resections of his tumour and he didn't have any sort of adjuvant therapy, um, as cancers do, they spread. Um, and he became just generally more and more sick. His levels became so low um, that it got to the point where the doctors decided that keeping him on fluids would do more harm than good. So that was the point that we decided we would get to is when this therapy that we were giving him did more harm than good. And that's obviously, you know, doctor's number one sort of, um, it's the Hippocratic Oath, you know, do no harm, that sort of thing. Um, so he was eventually taken off fluids on day 370 um, and he passed away two days later here in hospital um, and yeah it was he was he's just someone I'll never forget I mean you know I, I, I knew him for a year so I obviously won't forget him because he was just sort of I guess like furniture on the ward but it was a really good learning opportunity for me to learn a lot about the ethics of the hospital and, and what doctors can do and what they can't do and, and the importance of patients having a voice. And the big thing that I really learned from that case was quality of life um, and why it's so important for people to be able to talk about what they want and how far they want treatment to go. Um, I was really proud of myself that I was able to sort of say to his treating team and all of the people involved, you know, who, who would say, look at him, he's sitting in his chair, he's not walking the way he used to, what kind of quality of life is this? Then you can argue, who are we to say or determine what is quality of life for this man? If you go in and talk to him, which I did multiple times, he was actually very okay with sitting there and, you know, gradually not eating as much and just being reliant on fluid and not being able to, you know, walk or do the things that he used to do. That was quality of life for him. So it was not something that I'd really been able to focus on as much, but it was really something that came up for me a lot in that case and something that I will always take with me is the importance of quality of life and rem remembering that we as professionals cannot determine what quality of life is for someone. So Liz, let's start after that incredible story with this idea of discharge planning. Mm. And I think in this situation, it was so evident that the social worker had what's the impossible discharge. Here is a man who four litres in, four litres out, is having these incredible physical manifestations and situations that no nursing home will take him, mm. right? And as a society, I think we actually expect that everyone will eventually be able to go to a nursing home if there's no other option. Mm. But in this situation, for the first time, she found herself with the impossible, and she had to actually face the reality that this man was going to have to remain in the hospital for a lengthy period of time. And a year Whoa. really is a lengthy period of time. 
that is yeah that's incredibly rare but boy that's stressful when that person is your patient yeah Mm. it made me think about how for that man that was his home for a year Mm. and about how for nursing staff who were there through the night medical staff who are there through the night, social workers who are there day in, day out, the hospital also becomes like a home. It becomes a second home. Often it's got, it's got the cafeteria and the cafes. It's got everything you're going to need round the clock to sustain you while you're working. But for this man, it genuinely was his home yeah. for a year. And he would have had no idea about the pressure that was going on, not for the treating, not just for the treating staff, but the bed managers would have been pulling out their hair, yes. trying to work out how we can actually find a solution to get this gentleman out. Yes. And do you think at certain points in that year, the social worker would have been blamed? Totally. Yeah. That she would have been incompetent in her job because she hadn't facilitated a discharge for this man. Well, and, and I think that was being played out in the quality of life conversation. Yeah. I think that there would have been elements of the pressure on that bed that came into play in that whole ethical dilemma around what constitutes a person's quality of life and who determines that. That's so tricky, isn't it, though? Oh, I think, I think this, this story absolutely paints out the grey around all of that. Here we have in one corner the doctors saying there's no quality of life. How could there possibly be quality of life to this gentleman's care or life? Yeah. And then in the other corner we have the actual man saying, no, no, no. I, despite all of that, despite the five hours a day of active treatment I'm requiring, yeah. I choose life. And then where is our social worker situated in that? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Didn't did you get this sense of being in the middle, understanding both camps, but aligning herself to the man? Yeah. But also, ultimately, it's the social worker who's got the time to sit with that man and hear his experience, right? Mm. Because actually, in with the, all the staff that sit in a hospital... The social worker is the only one whose job it is to actually listen to people's stories. Yes. So these doctors are making decisions and having these debates around a person, whereas there's the social worker who actually has heard it from the person themselves. Mm. It really does position it very strongly in that notion of where the client is at, Mm. right? Because that man was so completely in a different place to all the staff around him. And did it leave you wondering about... How subjective quality of life is. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And the other thing, as I'm listening to it, I'm thinking, yeah, I couldn't even imagine choosing life over that. But how would we know until we're actually in it? Oh, it's that instinct survival, isn't it? The the instinct Mm. to survive no matter what, which Mm. is such a human instinct. I absolutely, I, I think he's sitting there in weighing up quality of life with completely different eyes, a completely different perspective to anyone else. And Mim, I think one of the things that I'm imagining came into play with his decision-making around that was his spiritual and religious beliefs. Can we talk a little bit about that now? I think we have to, yeah. 
we can't let this case study go by and not talk about the role of spirituality in social work yeah how about you kick us off look um this has sat with me for a while because social work has social work in australia has very firm roots in christianity and in the hospital almoners, um, it has roots in privileged women who had spare time going and supporting um, those, the deserved poor. But actually, as time and history have gone on, social work in this country has definitely become more and more secular, where um, it's frowned upon if we in practice uh, perpetuate any sort of religious or spiritual belief. And yet, Definitely in hospital and health social work, we're constantly having to have these conversations with people about their spiritual beliefs. And especially when you're coming to end of life, I think that's what, that's what people all the time are wanting to speak about. I think you're right, but I think that there are two S's that get avoided by a lot of social workers in their assessment, and that's sex and spirituality. And I think we'll devote at least 10 episodes at some stage on <laughs> what we don't say about sex. Absolutely. That comes at, anyway, whatever. But with regards <laughs> to spirituality, that's another big one. And I think a lot of us avoid that because of – thank you for contextualising it. Mm. Um, but perhaps we haven't actually done some deep thinking ourselves about it. But the reality is, and this case in point – I betcha this is one of those one of those um, topics that this person was very much keen to discuss. Yes. In fact, I think he was a pastor. Um, mm. I think that yes, that's said what she said. He would often be having um, hymns playing. That's right. Um, so it would have been a huge part of his life. And so, how could you not have had a conversation? several conversations with him about his spiritual belief. Well, I think the thing that social workers in hospitals do all the time is they palm spirituality off to the pastoral care yes, and to the local chaplains, right? And I think that's because we've made such a division in this profession between what constitutes a holistic perspective and a holistic assessment and what doesn't. Yes. Uh, and I, I think it's really to the detriment of people like this that we don't embrace it more. I have to tell you, I did uh, work once upon a time with a social worker who was the other end of the extreme, who um, would go and look at the through the hospital ward notes for every patient on her ward and find their religion in order to then go and pray with certain ones that were the same religion as her and uh, would wear a large crucifix and get told repeatedly to tuck it into a shirt. And the response from everyone was that she was completely inappropriate that she was go- not only inappropriate in herself as a person, but she was misrepresenting the profession. Mm. And so it was actually a, a workplace issue. And I think that's missing something quite big. It's like a piece of the puzzle is missing there. Because although I'm not saying it was right that she did all those things, what I am saying is if we don't acknowledge that us as individuals have a spiritual perspective in and of ourselves and that when we're working with another individual they have a spiritual perspective what we're doing is missing out on this wonderful opportunity to connect with someone on an element of their world that is so important and fundamental to them and I'm not sure then how we can justify that we're doing a holistic assessment. Absolutely and and part of it might be as well that that is the thing that they draw most on in their healing. 
or in their support. Yeah. And I would hazard a guess that in this gentleman's case, um, that was probably his spiritual or religious beliefs were probably very much a factor in why he chose life over end of life. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm only guessing, but I, I would imagine that that could have had some impact. And that would have been interesting to have heard that. And it might have also assisted some of the doctors to understand why he chose life. Yeah. You know, in social work education, we talk so much about strength-based work. And um, like it's, you know, apart from trauma-informed practice now, strength-based work was the big fashion before that. And, um, and it just amazes me that we don't see spirituality in that strength-based perspective. We don't put it there. Um, and we often ignore it. And you know, one of the questions I think that's really interesting to pose to, so- to social work students or to new graduates is what are you going to do when someone says to you, do, do you believe in God? Because actually that tests you as to uh, is this a conversation you're prepared to have? If you're not prepared to have it, that's okay, but why not? Where does it sit and how do you then maintain your perspective on the client and being where the client's at despite the topic of conversation that's come up from them. Mm. It challenges you, I think. So, Mim, we need to wrap it up, unfortunately. On that impassioned note, Liz. Look, hasn't it been a great discussion and a great story? So thank you to that social worker. Yeah. And I've got a few other thank yous too. I wanted to say thank you to Justin Setch, our producer who also did the interview yeah which was a wonderful interview thank you also to ben joseph our other producer who just works magic with our noise <laughs> um that's what we're calling our conversations now our noise our noise our impassioned noises with that each too. other i also wanted to say thank you to those people who've taken the time to leave comments um oh God, i got a little bit emotional when i read them i just thought <laughs> oh, that's so lovely look at that People are listening and taking the time to leave comments. I loved that. Have you read them yet? I have, and they're gorgeous. And also, I think, um, I just, I guess I just want to say, it's really important that people do leave comments, um, do write reviews for us on iTunes, and rate us, because obviously that makes our podcast much more accessible for people if that happens. But, you know, if you're really tempted to do the five-star rating, I'm not going to say no. Just go. No. So don't worry about the four and a half. Oh, don't. Go go straight for the five. Go straight for the five. Don't round it off. No, no, no. Hit as high as you need. Don't feel like we're stopping you expressing yourself via the stars. Yeah, good point, Mim. Yeah. Very good point. Hey, I don't know if you've listened to the song all the way through, but haven't we got, we've got this edgy song that we are using in the podcast and I just wanted to let people know that that's by a wonderful Australian musician called Ben Grace and the song's called Mama and you can find it on iTunes. So thank you, Ben, for being a part of the podcast as well. Yep, and it's um, becoming known as part of our podcast now being recognised, which I love. Dun, 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 <laughs> That's dun. it. Yeah. And maybe we should stop there. Okay. On the singing. Because, yeah. <laughs> then it becomes a completely different Bust podcast. Bust out the karaoke, Mim. Yeah. That's yeah. it. <laughs> Thanks again for that. See you next time. And, yeah, see you next time. Thanks, everyone, for joining our um, tribal discussions around the fire. Done.